Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Miriam Kinley, Assistant Professor of Art History at the University of Kentucky School of Art and Visual Studies. We will discuss her scholarship on the artist Ray Johnson, especially in relation to the history of obscenity law and the concepts of authorship and ownership. So welcome to the podcast, Miriam. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's all my pleasure. I'm really, um, you know, you know, I'm a big fan of Ray Johnson's work. Yes. um, As you are even a bigger fan. (laughs) Um, And I'm really looking forward to this conversation and to introducing him to people who might not otherwise heard of him as an artist or might not otherwise be familiar with his artwork and why it's so interesting and important. So I was wondering if you could start uh, by just spending a few minutes talking about who Ray Johnson was, sort of the artistic milieu mm-hmm. in which he kind of rose to prominence in his own unique way, yeah. and um, sort of what his artwork was like. Okay, so he is an artist uh, who kind of came to prominence in the New York art world in the 1950s and 60s. He had gone to this art school that was kind of a radical art school called Black Mountain College in uh, outside of Asheville, North Carolina. And there he met artists like Robert Rauschenberg and John Cage and the Albers, Joseph and Annie Albers, um, Buckminster Fuller, the architect, um, you know, poets, a number of important poets that were associated with Black Mountain. And he ended up moving to New York sort of with um, that milieu. Um, R- Richard Lippold, who was his boyfriend, who had been his teacher there, who was a sculptor, maybe lesser known today, but at the time was kind of a prominent um, abstract expressionist sculptor. And um, John Cage and Merce Cunningham, the dancer, and um, they all lived, and the composer Morton Feldman, they lived together in an apartment in New York. And Johnson became well known among that kind of downtown New York scene. Uh, he published in um, magazines like The Village Voice and, um, and Floating Bear Newsletter, these kind of where a lot of the beat poets were publishing work. So I would say the... Um, Artists like Robert Rauschenberg and um, Jasper Johns were sort of his initial milieu, but he is really most associated with um, a kind of hybrid of pop art and conceptual art called male art. So Mm -hmm. he started this um, form of art making that um, used kind of postal ephemera, um, so envelopes and stamps and cutting up other people's letters and um, parts of magazines um, and then would send them on to um, a, some a friend but also strangers that he just found in the phone book and asked them to uh, add to and send on to someone else or, or sometimes they were just collages for them to hold on to mm-hmm. as well. So um, he became known for this uh, mail art or correspondence art. He preferred the term correspondence art because, punnily, he said uh, mail art was sexist. So, um, so um, that really is how he made his name. Um, he did exhibit his work, the collages made out of mail art that he received from others, um, uh, and would construct these larger scale collages. And he did show that some in galleries, but he was really dedicated to making work 
that was not commodified. So it was continually circulating um, among his collaborators, but also that it was, um, so it was this kind of um, continuously making these collages, but um, also that he would give it away for free. I mean, and a lot of artists that later became um, associated with fluxus, which is a form of kind of conceptual art practice, um, also worked in this way, where it was about having happenings or what they or what they called flux events, happy, having these events, um, performances, and um, making ephemeral work um, that was kind of freely given and wasn't meant to be sort of just for a gallery or museum context. Yeah, and it's my understanding from from your work that he often would even send artwork to people like unsolicited or even to sort of random or anonymous people in some yeah. cases. Um, and a lot of times it had to do with the poetry of their name. He liked playing with people's first names and connecting people, um, you know, who had this, the same last name to one another, even if it was Johnson and there are hundreds of John. So picking people randomly out of the, out of the phone book, um, and he did get in trouble at one point for sending unsolicited homoerotic mail <laughs> to someone, um, which got the police at his door. Um, and ultimately, his defense that this was creative work and that it wasn't pornography, um, he didn't end up, um, you know, having to even go to court. Um, but I, he did end up having the FBI, he was on the radar of the FBI, and when I got um, through Freedom of Information Act, his file, um, they could tell me, these were these are all the folder, um, folders that we have on Ray Johnson, and these are the dates that they were destroyed. The last one of which was only like four years um, since, uh, like it had been four years earlier. Huh. And so had I just started my research a little bit earlier, maybe I would have gotten that let. But um, all of the folders that they had on Ray Johnson that they had collected during this period, sometimes called the Lavender Scare, so the part mm -hmm. of that kind of Cold War era that really targeted um, the gay and lesbian community. Um, I think Ray Johnson was sort of targeted in that um, scene as somebody who was making all these contacts between people and sending homoerotic material. And so I think that was sort of the nature, although although I can only speculate. Um, he has been called, he was called in 1965 New York's most famous unknown artist. So mm. I actually think he would have really enjoyed that there were all of these folders that were collected on him over the course mm. of the 50s and 60s and then that I could not see them because I think he was very opaque. Like a lot of people who even were decade-long collaborators felt like they didn't know him. So it's interesting to write a book about somebody who's um, constantly working their, uh, unworking their own identity or very evasive in interviews. Um, and um, yeah, he's mm -hmm. sort of an interesting figure in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and what I gathered from some of your work was that he also had kind of a parallel kind of quasi-theoretical practice hmm. around his kind of style of creating art, including mm -hmm. like special terms that he used to describe the yeah. kind of work that he was doing. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and also maybe just describe 
with a, you know in a little bit more granular detail like what the what, what some of them actually look like to the yeah. best of you to the best you can put it in words for people okay so some of the early collages um, that he called modicos because it was um, an anagram for osmotic and um, and it it was something that was meant to be not about passive reception but active reception so I think that's a place where the term modicos um, and he said, I like it too because it's singular or and plural. You could pronounce it modico or modicos from its spelling, um, and it's really up to you. And I think like that idea that it's always one in many and that it is um, something that is really about engaging active readership was so important to him. I think that is something that lasts throughout his work. But these early modicos are um, collages made from all kinds of things from beefcake magazines to um, to postcards, like um, kind of like picture postcards, to um, images of starlets, you know, from um, from f fan kind of magazines of, of the 50s, things from life, and then cutting up scraps of letters people would send him, like parts of other people's letters, he said, made particularly good modicos. <laughs> so they had all of these different parts of kind of postal ephemera that um, were part of what can they, they were made out of. Um, a lot of them also had um, holes in them that um, people, um, there are photographs of some of his collaborators sticking their fingers through. He would take photographs of them sort of um, enact, like playing with the modicos, sticking their fingers through. And actually I found this postal ephemera from the 50s where there would be these pinups that um, that were you were supposed to poke your fingers through erotic places in these pinups right um, all geared sort of towards a male so I think it's interesting how Ray Johnson takes a lot of um, vernacular aspects of the post office and then sort of flips them makes them queer, you know, where it is a male body that mm. you're um, poking your, your fingers through, you know, mm. in this beefcake image, or or just the ways in which letters are supposed to be private and personal. That's how we understand the sealed envelope is so important, right, to the post office. And so this idea that you're repurposing other people's private letters for something that goes on to someone else sort of disrupts common expectations about how things are supposed to be used in the post but I also sort of argue in my book on Ray Johnson that um, people who use the post has been used um, against kind of postal statutes and, and and sort of the way that postal authorities think the post should be used since its inception. Mm -hmm. The fact that it is this sort of circuitous system that connect people across very different communities allow for a lot of conversations that things like the Comstock laws tried to control, right? Mm -hmm. But but queer communities have been savvy about subverting those, you know, for generations. Yeah. So um, I think that um, that's sort of, um, some people have said Ray Johnson is not, he really isn't engaged with the post office. It's just sort of a vehicle for, but I think he's sort of deeply engaged with the way that people are using mm. postal material. And... Um, he's sometimes subverting that, but he's so engaged with it, and um, so yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah, you used a word in relation to the work, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. You said it was kind of polysemic. 
as yeah. it were. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and like looking at the images, it really comes across how you know each one of these collages could be interpreted in very different ways. Yeah, yeah. The ju and I think collage works well that way. You know, um, it's this juxtaposition of incongruous things that then you have to sort of make sense of. They're really brightly colored. I think because they have a lot of pop imagery, this is part of the reason why Johnson has been interpreted as a pop artist. But I think because his work um, isn't um, iconic and it's not commercially driven, it didn't quite fit in the pop realm. And because it's so um, playful and, and because it's, um, as Lucy Lepard, a famous critic who wrote about conceptual art, um, she called his work eccentric. And that's why in her famous book, which codified the terms of conceptual art, she, decide, she said in her introduction, I'm not including Ray Johnson because his work is too eccentric. Um, which I think in part, it, it's because of the camp aesthetic of his work, the kind of ways in which um, it's playful, it uses the outmoded, it uses puns to make sexual innuendo, it thinks about um, artifice a lot and exaggeration, um, as where conceptual art is, tends to be sort of like um, dry, not a lot of color, about the pure concept, right? The material is not supposed to matter a lot. And in mm -hmm. Ray Johnson, the, the materiality of those collages really matters a lot. He loves using um, stamps, you know, um, and placing even when on the outside of the envelope, the way the stamps are placed is really important to actually um, what he's saying on the inside with the collage. So you can see all these correspondences and resonances between aspects of the collage itself and then also the, the vehicle, um, like the way the, the stamps are placed or the cancellations. He loved to ask the post person to like um, cancel it more than once, you know, to create patterns on the outside of the envelope and things like that. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, um, and in in your in the work that I've read, mm -hmm. you sort of talk about the postal system, especially during that kind of particular fifties, early sixties post-war mm -hmm. period, mm -hmm. as being kind of simultaneously a locus of communication and control yeah. at the same time. I mean, you've talked about this a little bit already, but I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit more on sort of how Johnson's work react or fit into this sort of legal or increasing legalization and regulation of of the postal service and how people were able to use it and sort of how the government intervened in people's ability to communicate with each other through the Postal Service. Yeah, so I think in that period, there was an increased kind of crackdown by, from sort of the top down, from the post, this Postmaster Summerfield, and there were cartoons that lampooned him for censoring the distribution of, like, so much more material. So, um, I mean, like Lady Chatterley's Lover, these famous kinds of, you know. But um, the Comstock laws, um, which date back to the beginning, like the 19th century post office, um, which uh, said that, you know, material that's obscene cannot circulate in, in the post. But then what those terms, what, what counts as obscenity is not clear. It's sort of like, I know it when I see it, right? Um, and so... Um, in the 50s, I think what's interesting about Ray Johnson making this work at that time 
is that he's on the one hand is using the vernaculars of all of the queer folk who have subverted, have gotten around, have managed to make connections across the country um, using coded language or, um, or you know, um, through, or making contact through these mailing lists where you could have pen pals. So if you were in a, re a remote location where that was much more oppressive than, say, San Francisco or New York, right, um, you could kind of still have a sense of, like, a queer community. And so he uses the vernaculars of those mailing lists and coded language. But then also I think his work becomes, like, more explicitly um, homoerotic. And I think it's right around the time that... Um, and, and, you know, uses terminology. Some people actually have said Ray Johnson was the first person who coined the term the, cl the closet um, uh, and was sort of an expert at um, the opacities and the languages of, of kind of the closet. But I also think he becomes much more, I mean, um, explicitly kind of like uh, homoerotic and gay in his work than many of his peers. Um, and it's right around the one magazine decision. So when that word, like the word homosexuality, could actually circulate in activist magazines. So I think he's working right at this moment that these activists are like, okay, we don't want to have to like do it this circuitous way, right? Like we 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 want to be able to like talk about these issues in plain terms and not have that be called obscene because. Um, you know, this is a ground, like one magazine was a community, community making force across the, and, and they won, um, I, I think it was 1958, they won the, the one magazine versus Olson decision, mm. um, sort of changes what can circulate. And, um, and so, yeah, I think he's really engaging those changes and what that means for like the LGBTQ community of his his day mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so yeah yeah the way you described a lot of these kind of the construction and development and engagement with these mailing lists almost reminded me of like a snail mail version of of social media yeah in some way yeah um d definitely i mean uh, ray johnson especially i think in the late 60s when there is a lot of conversation, well, mid to late 60s. So artists are making work with people at Bell Labs. Ray Johnson's closest friend is a mathematician for IBM. They're talking a lot about networking and how this is, how these new kinds of, how computers and electronic technologies that we have yet to see are going to sort of change our sense of connectedness. And so I think he is thinking about it in those terms. And then the sociological experiments that um, come to inform the way we understand um, social networks today, like Six Degrees of Separation, are actually, those studies were done in the mid-60s. And so I think as Ray Johnson starts calling this his correspondence school or correspondence network, he is actually thinking about social networking and like, um, you know, how six degrees of separation actually works by act, asking, that study was conducted by people forwarding mail um, onward, like it, to see how long it took to get to this person who had this particular identity. They would give you the profile of this person and say, send this to the person that you think most 
um, might know this person. And it took, on average, six times for that to get there. So Ray Johnson being like, um, please add to and send this on to this person, I think is absolutely engaged with that um, experiment and the idea of social connect. And then, of course, there's Marshall McLuhan's, like, the um, idea of the small world, right, of the global village um, and, um, like, in a sort of popular consciousness, thinking about how much more connected we are globally because of electronic media. And so I think those conversations are there, even if the technologies have not, I mean, I'm sort of of the belief that the discourse is there before the technology, not that the technology Mm. is driving the discourse, right? Right. That there is this aspiration for that and that the people, the artists who are working with the mathematicians and, you know, and computer scientists at IBM, that the, they're driving sort of what they're aspiring to this thing that doesn't exist yet. And mm-hmm. Johnson's one of a number of artists who are sort of, Rauschenberg too, mm-hmm. he ends up being very involved yeah. with. Imagining the technology that they want to see in some sense. Yeah, and sort of the utopian ambitions of that. And it, it's, um, I w- would be interested to know it's, sad that Johnson isn't with us anymore because I'd be interested to know what he thought about where it ended up um, because, yeah, the, the sort of dystopias yeah. <laughs> of it because I think the way in which he imagined the post office wasn't the rhetoric of, like, um, utopian discourse where anyone can be in touch with anyone for a very small amount of money, you know, that was like, you can be in touch for the price of a stamp with anyone in the world and anyone, you know, and then the dystopia of sort of postal censorship. I think he sort of exists somewhere and he's ambivalent and mm. exists between those those two spaces. And, is, um, and it seems yeah. like a lot of the work was just ambiguous enough to not kind of trigger the possibility for an obscenity prosecution. Yes. But sort of um, uh, it implied enough that it must have raised some eyebrows. Yeah, I think so. I think he's really good at kind of like walking walking that kind of line um, between, yeah, that, that really well said. Yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one thing, in, you know, it, in relation to this idea of networks as mm-hmm. well, is that I took from your work that you know one of the one of the best known people in in Johnson's network was Andy Warhol. Yes, and you know when you look at the work, you Johnson's work in comparison to Warhol. I mean, you know they're obviously very different in a lot of ways, but yeah. there are certain kinds of similarities in aesthetic and perspective yeah. and approach kind of in in the way the work looks and yet they seem to have taken very different positions in relation to the art market yeah with sort of Warhol conceptualizing himself as he put it in his own words as like a business artist the best kind right right and Johnson seems very different I was wondering if you could talk about his relation to the art market and to sort of the concept of artistic ownership Okay, so um, I think that, yes, their sources are very similar, um, especially if you look back to, like, Warhol of the, of the, the 50s or, or even some of maybe, like, the, the lesser-known Warhol works. Um, but the, the um, Elvis, you know, uh, Marilyn Monroe, um, 
the Dorothy, like the, you know, the kind of like friends of Dorothy, like mm -hmm. these kind of like um, camp coatings, right, or, or um, sort of like that that is definitely a tie between the two of them. Well, I the think the stamps and the repetition and like, yeah, you know. I mean, and I think um, they both are kind of interested in um, star culture and the fan, um, but I think Ray Johnson is more interested in fans and reception and sort of how um, the reader is making the work and how that's unstable and that's not commodifiable and he wants to underscore that as where I think Warhol is interested in exploiting the iconic image to um, to show um, it to show its instability but through like exploiting it to the greatest extent like how how um, the art, how much will the art market pay for this thing that is like totally de-authored, right? Like, and, um, and, and so he, they work, they're working on similar themes, but almost from opposite directions. Like, um, I think, um, and yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> Ray Johnson as this famous unknown, I mean, I think Warhol, um, is also sort of in that way. They are both kind of opaque, you know? They're both, like, really hard to read. I think they're both interested in... There's a great new book on Warhol called Like Andy Warhol, and it's um, how the idea of being like is, like, in terms of likeness, like representation, but also in terms of, um, you know, uh, like with his films, like Blowjob, like um, these images that are the same or the kiss, or kissing, right? Mm -hmm. Like how... Um, you see all these different couples kissing, but they're, each kiss is so different, and there are gay couples kissing and straight couples kissing and interracial couples kissing. And it's sort of... Um, they, um, Jonathan Flatley, who wrote this book, talks about it as misfitting together. And I think Ray Johnson is interested in how togetherness is kind of misfitting. So these are some of the ways they're similar. But in terms of the art market, I mean, I think Ray Johnson would never... Um, you always, every dealer had to be on his terms. He was very, um, and those terms were um, constantly changing depending upon the conversation. So if somebody asked for a discount on a collage, he would take 15% of the collage off. So the collage materializes the exchange. It's like, it's like, <laughs> oh, you've agreed to have this collage. So I think he was very problematic. I mean, and, and, he would never kind of know his place. So when this really um, now probably the most prominent gallery in the world, Gagosian, I think that uh, Larry Gagosian is maybe the most powerful dealer in the art world. When Larry Gagosian wanted to um, uh, buy Johnson's early, his, some of his modicos, he said, Modico's, $1 million. And he was a kind of an unknown, I mean, Ray Johnson had never, because he never would make, he was a difficult figure. He didn't have a market value because he held on to a lot of his work or destroyed it by continuing to circulate it, right? Mm -hmm. So um, cutting off, like if you look at collages that the Ray Johnson estate has, they'll have dates from the 50s, and then be dated again in the 80s and the 90s on multiple dates. So he was constantly reworking his his work. He never wanted it to be kind of like stable and commodifiable. And it's hard for dealers then mm. to um, to 
to sort of deal with that. I mean, how do you, if, if, you know, and if they're making these kind of impossible demands and they don't seem to understand that they're an unknown who doesn't command a million dollars, you know? So I feel like he actively always tried to stay in a marginal position because the marginal outside position was the interesting one for him. Mm. Like, I think maybe that was because of being marginalized because of his sexuality, and then he's like, I'm going to own that. Mm. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I think he, I think, unlike Warhol, like, for example, the famous Warhol interview where he says, I want to be a machine, my friend Jen just found the original transcript of that, and that interview actually starts out, don't you think that pop art's queer? That is the first, that's the beginning of that interview is though, are those ideas mm-hmm. of how pop art is queer in relationship to abstract expressionism, mm-hmm. which was so masculine and straight, right? right. And so there, there, but even though there were many gay artists who were also <laughs> abstract expressionists, but so they're, they're making these, this, but that got edited all out by art news. All of that was taken out to make it a straight interview. So you don't understand why Andy Warhol, like what it, what the stakes of being a machine are, mm. without that other part, and I don't think Johnson ever allowed himself that he he would refuse. Then you wouldn't be able to publish it if you extracted out those kinds of things. I think that that, and it was so deeply the camp, and the the kind of, um, the gay aspect of it was so integral to the work that it couldn't be extracted out. Um, but I do think Warhol um, was really savvy at sort of working the art world, you know, mm-hmm. but um, mm-hmm. but in places, yeah, that was, did, yeah. Did Johnson have sort of a gallery presence at any, or gallery or museum presence at any point in his life? How, when exactly did he, did he die? And sort of, what's the mm-hmm. status of the work now? now? Is yeah. it like consistent? Do you think with his hopes, or hmm. have, <laughs> has the circumstances changed? Those are all good questions. So, um, yes, he had um, somewhat of a gallery career. He had a show at the Willard Gallery in 1965, and when that show was reviewed by Grace Gluck of the New York Times, she's the one who called him the famous unknown artist. Um, but um, Frances Beatty, who runs the Ray Johnson estate, she, had, she was the director for Feigen Gallery, um, Richard L. Feigen, which is a prominent gallery, first Chicago, then New York. And she always wanted to do a show with Ray Johnson, and she said Ray Johnson would always say, sure, sure, we'll have, a no- we'll have n- nothing in the gallery. And he had these performances that were called nothings, and she was like, I'm not sure if he's going to do a performance <laughs> thing. Or if literally there is going to be nothing in the gallery, but she would, she would, he would keep her on the hook, and then never ever did anything with her. And so I think he had the has these moments where he'll have a show. He had a show at Betty Parsons, which was um, a prominent gallery for abstract expressionists and neo dada, and. Um, but it was about the Betty Parsons gallery, so it was about the artists in the Betty Parsons gallery that Ray Johnson wanted to make a comment on. And all of the collages were dedicated to the artists in her stable. So it's only if the exchange is interesting to him, right, that it become that he really will agree to do a show. And for the most part, he makes it very hard for anyone to do a show. And then the only major museum show he had in his lifetime was at the Whitney Museum of American Art in 1970. 
And in that show, there were no Ray Johnsons. There were only things sent to the museum at Ray Johnson's request. So he would be like, oh, you should send things to Marsha Tucker, you know? So then the wall was just filled with tons of stuff from people who, some of whom were really well known, like Yoko Ono, but then other people who were like, he invited them because they lived in Johnson, Tennessee. You know what I mean? <laughs> like they, they were not known by anyone. So um, anyhow, so he, um, and now the Ray Johnson estate where he had no um, children and no siblings, and so there was um, a cousin who ended up, um, who was the next in line, the next heir, because he had no will um, when he committed, sadly um, committed suicide. Um, and so um, that um, was bought from this cousin by the Ray Johnson estate that's run by Francis Beatty, who at the time was affiliated with Richard Feigen, but is, is no longer. And Francis will say, you know, um, I mean, in a way, his animosity towards the gallery world and how um, the high prices that his work is going for now, um, that that uh, is not, you know, like, she's like, I'm in the evil armor. You know, she's like aware of sort of how, of um, the kind of like sad ironies of that. Like he um, held on, there was so, he held on to this work because um, he didn't want it to be, or, or circulated it out because he didn't want it to be commodified. But, um, but now, it, but it is, but then that means there's visibility for Johnson because of the state, you know? So now, and I think he's an important figure to remember. I mean, I wouldn't be writing a book on him if he wasn't. I do think the issues of valuation are extremely hard for Johnson. Um, so being able to do a catalog raisonné, which is what codifies all the, it, it legitimizes and authenticates the work. So work that is intensely collaborative is very hard to authenticate because there's no artist's hand, right? So it disturbs issue like authentication, whether or not this is a piece of correspondence, so it's archival material, or if it's an artwork. Those are two other things that are really, and he was insanely prolific, so there's so much material everywhere. And I think the estate believes that the things that appear more like the gallery collages, so the things he would sometimes show in galleries, are the works. And that the correspondence art is something else, and they're like, we don't sell that, we'll yeah. donate that to archives, but that's something else. But the thing is, they're so intensely intertwined with one another. There are fragments of the correspondence in the, the um, in the gallery works, which are um, sort of thicker and mounted to board. But then there are these thick mounted to board pieces. So um, this portrait he was making of this famous critic from the 60s, David Borden, um, he got in a fight with David Borden and he cut off his ear from the collage portrait he was making and sent it to him. So, I mean, in the correspondence, there are fragments of the gallery collages. They are so intertwined, I don't think they can be separated out. And I think the state tries to do that in order to, um, you know, curtail the number of Ray Johnsons out there so that the mar they can, you know, hold the market. But... Um, but his practice yeah. is so antithetical to that. It's yeah. it's just really problematic. Kind yeah, so almost like a kind of management for convenience purposes rather than yeah. something driven by the actual aesthetics of the works themselves. Exactly. Yeah. I, yes. And and I mean because his work is so um, 
networked and queer, thus making extremely prescient for our moment. I think that they know that this has value. People, there's a lot of interest in Ray Johnson right now, so they know that. But if they people feel that there are just tons of Ray Johnsons out yeah. there, then that yeah. doesn't make the you know it's like what what then how is the, how do we construct the value if it's not rarity and how how if we can't fully authenticate things i mean and archives have problems with ray johnson too do you put this in a ray johnson folder or this artist folder like it's hard to codify authorship mm. with him because um, because it well one work that was just acquired by a museum his collaborator Robert Warner was like, "Oh, that's actually mine." He's like, <laughs> "That was like my stamp is the Kurt Schwitter stamp, yeah, the yeah. the collage by Kurt Schwitter." So also, Ray Johnson had things that would be, um, you know, he had a um, stamp that was um, collage by Ray Johnson, but then one of his other collaborators had a stamp that was um, fake collage by Ray Johnson, <laughs> and so anything that's like Richard C. and Ray Johnson is, and then. Um, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of famous artists like um, Schwitters or, you know, that it's just disturbing who mm. the work is actually by. It's hard mm. It's hard to uh, authenticate an archive, you right. know? So, right. um, yeah. And he was interested in copyright, issues of copyright, too, I think. Like, he um, talked about his, like, he loved, like, punny things. He talked in the like late 80s 90s about copy left you know like his work being mm. um copy left um yeah, i mean i think not engaged in that discourse in the level of which we have it now but i think he was thinking about that like mm. how um because he's interested in unraveling the idea of what an author is right um and copyright is trying to codify mm -hmm. what an author is so I, yeah yeah right. no that's i think that's so true copyright really relies on a sort of fixed identifiable author yes and a stable work yes that can be owned yes in some sort of deep metaphysical way <laughs> yes and that seems so antithetical to his entire artistic practice yes yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah, like yeah, yeah. i mean the nature of the how are you going to do that just by the nature of the practice yeah. yeah so miriam in closing i wonder if you could just reflect briefly on what you know you're hoping the takeaways for the readers of your book to be i mean like sort of mm. what, what are the main things you'd like people to know or to think about ray johnson that mm. kind of currently is not part of the discourse in a way you think it should be hmm that's a good question I mean, I think, I guess there are different bodies of readership, you know. I imagine that for the art historical community, um, not only is he a sort of under-considered figure, but I think he troubles the narratives around post-war art. He doesn't, he's in conversation with everybody, but he's not exactly a pop artist or a conceptualist. He's in dialogue with minimalism, you know, so mm -hmm. he doesn't fit in categories. And so I think he troubles the way that we understand late modernism and the categories of that. So I think he's interesting in that way for sort of art historical discourse and its dependency still on like these, these single authors. But I also think larger ideas about networks and how networks operate and this idea that, um, I mean, I think there is an antagonism to his participation. Like, we seem to valorize 
participation and tra um, transparency and collaboration. And I think Ray Johnson was sort of like, okay, yeah, me too, but I'm sort of suspect of that as well, you know? And so things like um, opacity and compression and um, obstinance. I mean, I see him a little bit as like a Bartleby figure, you know, in the dead letter office, like being like, I prefer not to, you yeah. know? So I think that maybe that is valuable. Like maybe we need to think a little bit more about that in our sort of like hyper connected lives, you know, about like the value of those kinds of things. And it's not like privacy and the private. He wasn't interested in sort of private property and privacy, but really about like this demand that we constantly render ourselves visible, you mm -hmm. know, I think he is suspect about that. Yeah. And that's, that's important, you know, to ask those questions. Um, and I think especially um, that in, it, in its own way, like in the LGBTQ community, I mean, I think especially like fixing identity, like, you know, um, that's a really crucial sort of issue, you know, like I think homophobia oftentimes operates in that it's like you either are you this or you're that, you know, like wanting to locate and name identity in this way. And so I think he troubles that as well, like um, and in ways that are important for us to think about. So I, I think I hope that scholars in other fields and then also maybe in law too, like ideas of ownership, like what really what really is the value of work? You know, um, this I mean, for Johnson, it was connecting us to one another in ways that present pressing questions and attune us to like like everyday kinds of things and um, and rather than um, you know making highly commodifiable objects that can be um, sold and appreciate in market value, you mm -hmm. know so I, I I think um, yeah, those kinds of things are also really interesting about Johnson. So I hope that the book kind of digs into that a little bit and he becomes a useful example, you know, alongside other artists like, you know, a Warhol figure or something. Um, so, yeah. Great. Well, Miriam, it's been yeah. really fun talking to you about Ray Johnson. And yeah. I can't wait to read the book when it's yeah. finished. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you.